Hello, everybody, and welcome to your seventh episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that releases a magic set every month until you run out of money. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad to be here and looking forward to our conversation this week. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So, Travis, break down for everybody what we're going to go over today. Well, this week we have four segments, uh, our standard format. First segment will be our top movers, the cards that have moved the most this week and why it's happened. We will then move on to our buy watch, which is cards James and I think you and I, you should be keeping an eye out for uh, to pick up in the near future. We will then move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. This week we'll be looking at the Legacy Open in Philadelphia. And finally, a segment for our topic of the week. This week that's MTGO, 10, MTGO Finance 101. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in on segment one, top movers. I'll take the first one because this is something I've had a close eye on for the last last week or so, and that's going to be Chandra Flamecaller from Oath of the Gatewatch, uh, new set. She started the week around $9, and copies are about $20, just under $20 right now for about 100% gain. This is a card that got mixed reviews on release, Chandra was quietly appearing in standard deck lists after uh, standard had been out for a week or two after Oath of the Gatewatch at the streets. And as all attention turned to modern and the rise of the Eldrazi, people kind of forgot about standard. Meanwhile, Eric Froelich and some other pros have called Chandra the best card in Oath of the Gatewatch. And uh, above several of our uh, several MTG price writers got in on Chandra about a week, a week and a half ago because we kind of realized like, hey, this card's really good. Uh, after the mana bases rotate in standard, that double red gets a little bit easier and decks are going to have to consolidate a bit. And it looks like uh, we got in just in the nick of time. I wouldn't be surprised to see this hang around in the $15 to $25 range for quite some time. And I'll be curious to see how she fares at the Pro Tour. Yeah, I mean, this is a Planeswalker that I've had my eye on since she was revealed. Um, to me, it, it was always um, a question of, you know, is this a one of out of the sideboard or is this something that could turn into a four of like Elspeth in her, in her heyday and Theros block? Um, I mean, the power level is there. The question is always, you know, do you have time um, and ability to ramp into a card like this? Do Are the other uh, deck components present that allow you to defend your life total as you're anticipating her arrival? And once she arrives, do you have ways to defend her or make sure that her... Um, abilities will culminate in you winning the game she has that ability to you know put two three one haste creatures on the battlefield which can put the game away fairly quickly if they they don't have good blockers and she can preface that with the ability to sweep the board um, which is you know a great way to deal with the collected company decks that are popping up where pretty much everything comes out with three toughness or four toughness and Chandra has a chance to um, become the reactive spell that cleans things up 
um, after a couple of big companies have resolved. That's where I see her future, by the way, is we talk about trying to transition from the one or two of to can we get four in a deck? And I think it's the Ram decks that look poised to survive after rotation that can really lean on Chandra as a great bridge card that can come down, clean up all the garbage. We know Reflector Mage is a huge part of the format. Clean up all those small creatures, maybe hang around and deal some damage afterwards. If not, no big deal. You wipe the board. If so, you get to keep applying pressure and she's just cheap enough that she can kind of hang out. You can get there on turn four while you're trying to work your way up to Ulamog. So I like her as a bridge, which puts her in position to hit four up in ram decks. Yeah, I mean, if that happens, and it happens roughly at the same time as standard rotates, um, that the Eldrazi get banned in modern and a bunch of the Eldrazi cards lose value out of oath, um, then, you know, Chandra might be poised um, to see further gains. Um, if only half of that situation goes down, meaning that the Eldrazi cards lose value, but she doesn't show up um, as a you know dominant force in a deck that's winning tournaments um, as a four of, then you know I think that most of the gains have already been baked in at twenty. Um, it's very rare for a Planeswalker to exceed that amount, or for a Mythic you know uh, of any kind in Standard to exceed that amount, and it usually only happens when the card is exceedingly dominant. Um, so I, I'm on the fence. Uh, watching from the sidelines i have copies i picked up at 10 to 12 dollars that i'll be trading out actively um, and i'm only going to look for a re-entry point if she slides a bit and it seems like she has a chance for a recovery okay what's next so next on our list is petrified field uh, a land out of the odyssey block that started the week just under five dollars and finished above 12 for almost 180 percent gain um this is a, a card, if you're not familiar, that can tap for colorless mana, which is relevant for Eldrazi potentially and Legacy, since its second ability allows you to sacrifice it and return a land from your graveyard to your hand. Uh, in theory, this is a way for Eldrazi decks to manage uh, attacks on their mana base by cards like Wasteland. Um, and, you know, that being said, I haven't actually shown seen it show up on camera anywhere. I haven't seen it show up in any winning deck list. So, um, and it's not on the reserve list or anything. So it's a card that could, in theory, be reprinted if it, if it there was a need. Um, you know, at at twelve dollars plus, I'm I'm happy to be trading out of any of the copies of this I find sitting around in my in my collection. Um, really can't see this becoming a, a must have for for the Eldrazi deck and legacy. Uh, seeing this in Legacy as an answer to Wasteland just seems like such a stretch, and I could totally see this popping up as an uncommon in some sort of commander set. You know, it shows up in two or three decks. Uh, this doesn't seem like uh, something I'd want to be in deep on. Maybe the foils, just because you're never going to see another old border foil. But. I mean, it's also a card that's played occasionally in vintage decks. There's some dredge decks that use it, but again, I mean, the, for the amount of percentage of the population that's playing vintage these days, it's nothing I want to be chasing after. Yep. Uh, next up on our list is Hall of the Bandit Lord from Champions of Kamigawa. This is specifically the foil copy. Uh, we've got prices jumping from low 30s to $100. I don't believe this is a, you know, we, we put it on here because it shows up on, on the stats tracking. I don't believe this is necessarily a real price spike. Cha what we see frequently, uh, semi-frequently, and we're going to see it again this week, is that a card with, with low supply will sell out and somebody will relist it at some tremendously higher number and it makes it look like it has this humongous price change but in fact it's really only going to start selling at maybe five to thirty percent more than it was originally so <laughs> this is 
on our charts at 200% this week, but I don't think that that's a real number. I mean, the, the only deck that I've ever seen it played in is uh, Mud Decks and Legacy, um, where it occasionally shows up as a one of. Um, so, I mean, again, uh, if you've got a random foil of Hall of the Bandit Lord sitting around and you can find somebody that wants that card, um, by all means, exit to something that has better upside. Mm-hmm. So next on our list, we have Thorn of Amethyst, both editions. Um, card that went from $4 earlier in the week, finishing around 15 for almost a 300% gain. This one does actually have real legs, I think, um, because it's uh, a major part of the legacy Eldrazi decks that are starting to show up. Um, you know, just when you thought your format was safe, um, here come the Eldrazi, um, already dominant in modern. Um, they seem poised to take up uh, at least a tier 1.5 or tier 2 position uh, in the legacy metagame certainly makes legacy a little bit more interesting, I think, because the the mid range attacking strategy of the Eldrazi forces other decks to adjust um, and operate on a different axis, and because of that, it it, it could um, help to create a more uh, diverse um, and interesting format. Um, Worth noting that this is usually a four of, it's usually main deck. The whole thing here is that the Legacy Eldrazi decks try to lock people out of casting their cheap um, library manipulation, card draw, and uh, kill spells by casting Chalice of the Void on one uh, and then trying to get a thorn out to make their lives even harder. Really shuts down decks like uh, Storm um, or anything that's trying to cast a lot of spells per turn um, can give Miracles trouble. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of decks that, that have trouble um, if one and two casting cost spells suddenly are uh, automatically countered or cost two or three or, or what have you. So, you know, these spikes make sense given, um, you know, people trying to maybe protect their, their modern Eldrazi assets by shifting those assets into a legacy deck um, that overall isn't too expensive um, given the, the almost complete lack of dual lands in most of the Eldrazi builds. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, Stony Silence, which we spoke about on this podcast a week or two ago. Uh, in that it's a card, uh, two mana card, it is annoying. It, it's sort of a, a basically a sideboard hate card that became relevant enough that it gets pushed to the main deck. And it continues to increase in value as we have no additional supply, but that I could see pop up in a lot of different places that would just sort of crush the value. I don't think we're going to see this in standard. Wizards doesn't tend to push cards that prevent people from casting their spells. But I do think you could see the show up in Conspiracy. You could see it in Eternal Masters. You could possibly even see it in Commander. Um, so, you know, they, we could go two or three years without seeing more copies of this, and the thing will be 50 bucks, and that's very possible. On the flip side of that, you could see it again this year. Uh, they wouldn't have printed it this year because the price was too expensive, of course, but if they thought that it was appropriate for one of those sets, and uh, that can be really difficult to foresee. So... I wouldn't hold any more than a personal play set. Uh, moving on is... Oh, go ahead. No, go go for it. You, you want to talk about Peacekeeper from Weatherlight? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about Peacekeeper real quick. I've uh, handled a few of these in my day. Peacekeeper from Weatherlight. It is currently three... Was, I'm sorry, was $3 and is now about 13 or about a 300% increase. Uh, Peacekeeper is, for those of you that have been around the legacy scene for a few years, will recognize this. This used to be very relevant. Uh, it came in against Merfolk when Merfolk was a real card. 
So that was however many years ago in Legacy. Um, basically prevents all creatures from attacking. There's a two mana upkeep, but uh, that's definitely not a problem for a lot of decks that are looking to drag the game out. This hasn't seen any play recently, but with the announcement of Eternal Masters, reserve list cards are all over the place. And I guess people decided to jump on this. I, it's a little surprising. There are a lot of reserve list cards I would have expected to sell out before Peacekeeper. Perhaps this card's previous pedigree inspired somebody to action. Maybe supply was really low. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but I believe that that's why we're seeing this price increase. Is it's kind of it used to be good, and it's on the reserve list. So I'll yeah, I on. worked up a spreadsheet last week of pretty much all the reserve list uh, cards that could potentially fall because it, as they started to get bought out over the last few weeks, it, it occurred to me that it was probably going to go down like dominoes with a few going down uh, week after week. And this did show up as one of the cards that was relatively low demand. Um, it's really only played as a, a one of in some of the Alluren builds. Um, but the, you know, the supply was also quite low. So not a huge surprise to see somebody move in on the card. And, and, and uh, I wish them the best of luck in trying to move those copies. So next on our list, we have Shatterstorm Foils from 10th uh, edition. Um, apparently, this is the only foil edition of Shatterstorm. Um, and as such, has moved uh, from $30 or so to, in theory, over $200. Um, I'm finding it very hard to believe that anybody's going to unload any copies at that price. Um, I would expect the the price point to fall back somewhere under $100, um, possibly as though as 50 or 60 once copies started coming out of the woodwork. Um, a 500% plus increase is the kind of thing that's going to get people scouring old binders and bulk boxes looking for copies of this and you know sooner or later um, i expect this price to settle definitely not something you want to be buying into at all ever um but certainly if you can sell into this hype uh in any way shape shape or form um you can only be profiting um there's no way you paid much to get your copy in the first place mm-hmm. yeah i i agree there's no way this is a 200 dollars card um next up we have Oh God, I'm going to butcher this. Oubliette, is that right? Oubliette? Yeah, you, yeah, you nailed it. All right, well, okay. Uh, Oubliette from Arabian Nights. Uh, this is an enchantment that... It's a black enchantment that exiles creatures when it comes into play. I don't know. The Oracle text on this is confusing. It's gone from 15 to $100. I don't think there's a lot to say here. It's another uh, domino. Oh, wait, it's not... Oh, this is not a reserve list. Oh, actually... Huh. All right, you know what? I got nothing here, James. What do you got for me? Is it not reserve list? Let's double check that. No, no, I'm looking at it right now, uh, and it's not reserve list. Wow. Um, what it is, however, is a card that's never been reprinted. Um, that was only ever in Arabian Nights, the first expansion ever for Magic. Um, it's not going to hold a hundred dollars. There's still multiple copies available on eBay under thirty. Um, but I could see this being a card that will hold something near 30 and start to creep up to 40 and 50 and 60 over the years because it's far too complex of a card. The templating is a disaster, um, and there's no way that they're going to have any desire to reprint it um, when they can simply use modern templating and modern uh, uh, removal concepts to provide the player base with what they need. So the only place I could ever see this showing up would be something like uh ftv lore or something um where you know you would expect lore to be full of 15 amazing cards that resonate as iconic um but given how they messed up ftv 20 it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest to see something weird like this in there 
um, with new art and new templating. Um, I mean, if you've got cards like this sitting around from Arabian Nights, you can feel relatively secure to hold on to them. If somebody wanted to give you $100 for it, jump. Um, but, you know, otherwise, it's probably worth 30 to 40 and you'll see some slow, steady gains over the years as this continues to not get reprinted. Yeah, our, our list this week is just full of cards that are that are sort of bewildering. Uh, Riet is one, and our biggest gainer of the week is sort of in the same ballpark, I think. It's Brindle Shote. Brindle Shote, <laughs> yeah. Uh, from Plain Chase. Started out at around 50 cents, looking at about four bucks right now. That's a 700% price increase. This was printed once in a Plain Chase. I believe that's what it is, Plain Chase. Yeah, 2012. Uh, 20, yeah, Plain Chase 2012, so four years ago. There are like six playsets of this card on the planet. And I'm assuming that somebody somewhere bought the last couple for some casual deck they were building or some popper combo deck. And then somebody else went to list the one copy they had and saw there were none and stuck it at $4. Uh, so it's just, it's another one of these sort of inflated price explosions that doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah, well, there's a few different things that contribute to a card like this exploding. We've touched on them a little bit in the past. First of all, it's technically an uncommon, but because it was uh, from a plane chase set, uh, I believe there was only a single copy in each deck, if I'm not mistaken, um, similar to Commander products. And because of that, um, it's more it operates more like a rare. Um, the distrib- total distribution of plane chase sets um, as a supplemental set versus something like a fall set is also far, far less. So even if it wasn't uncommon, uncommon from a supplemental product um, with a single printing is going to be um, more akin to a rare or a mythic from another set. Um and so full playsets of this are, uh, you know, when they're used, they're probably used as full playsets because they're most attractive in decks that want to sacrifice a lot of creatures for value. So I've been seeing some some weird modern decks uh, on Magic Online using Goblin Bombardment um, and a ver- testing a variety of different creatures that kind of work in this matrix where you're, you're getting an automatic double use out of the creature. Um, you know, you get to block and then sack it, do something, get a 3-3, that gets to block, sack, do something. Um, you know, I can understand the appeal of wanting to have four of if you decide the card fits into your deck. Um, and because, you know, it, it's a unique card that's never seen a reprint, um, only showed up in supplemental to begin with, it actually does have a, a bit of a bullseye on it as something that could gain uh, in value over time. Uh, I uh, I will defer to you on that one. I just see I just see a shout, just a brindle shout. <laughs> Uh, all right. I mean, it's it, it's also occasionally played in in popper in stompy style decks, um, Have we, but I, I find it hard hard to believe that that's what bled it dry. Yeah, I mean, we haven't. I mean, I believe that popper has quite an impact on uh, MTGO prices, but we haven't seen popper do much to paper prices. Yeah, agreed. Okay, um, let's jump into segment two. Uh, James, you, uh, I'm gonna have you start this week with your first pick, your card to watch for the week for us. Sure. So pretty much all of my cards this week are undervalued uh, picks from Battle for Zendikar that are all long-term. Um, they're going to take a while to gain in value, but seem like really great uh, moves uh, down the road. The first of the, on that list is uh, Foils of Shambling Vents, um, the, I think, de facto standard best um, person land to come out of Battle for Zendikar. Um, the ability to gain lifelink um, and swing grindy uh, count, 
attack counterattack type games um, has marked this card as a potential player all the way back to at least modern um, where it's commonly played in junk and black white token builds and is likely to find additional homes down the road um, as that format shifts and, and sways my confidence level on this going from its current price of about ten dollars to uh, $20, say, in the next two or three years would be at least a seven. Um, the Any playable person land is likely to have some demand uh, from casual EDH and, in this case, potentially modern circles, and that's enough for me to get on board for a long-term hold. I, I have something I want to talk to you about here. I hear you saying person land, and I'm not sure I'm on board with person land yet, I kind of like Anna Land, as in like animated. What do you think of that one? Or maybe Creature Land. I mean, Creature. any of its flex, as long as it's inclusive, seems like it's fine by me. I just like Anna Land. It's, it's quick and it's easy. Anna Land. It's an Anna Land. I, I think some people will have trouble pronouncing that, but otherwise I could get with it. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, oh yeah, other than that, this is a great idea. When I saw you put this on the spreadsheet, I saw foils at $10. It's like, really? That's it? It's a good one. Um you know, you and I are of like mind. I'm kind of looking at uh, longer term stuff, also from the same block. Um, both of my cards are over the gate watch. Uh, my first one, and this is a repeat from last week, but it hasn't changed. I'm still really big on Kozilek. I've been watching, checking this every day. Prices are dropping maybe like five cents a day right now for TCG low. I'm keeping a very close eye. I'll be moving in very soon. Um, uh, and nothing's really popped up in the last week that I felt desperate to add to the list i just wanted to reiterate that i still think calls life is a great choice he's uh between seven and eight dollars right now i think that there is no doubt that we see this over 15 bucks sometime within the next six months to a year and he can only go up from there so it's just it, to me it's it's it might be a little slower but it's a slam dunk yeah, I mean, they, you're right. There's copies as low as seven or eight. Uh, I've been moving in on them at $10 on Puka Trade confidently for long-term holds. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love Kozilek. It's, uh, it's a card that's inevitably going to be a $15 or $20 card, even if just on casual demand alone. So uh, my next set of cards is a is a uh, a set uh, of cards. It's pretty much all of the undervalued mythics from Battle for Zendikar. Um, we're talking about Part the Water Veil, undergrowth champion void winnower and sire of stagnation all of which are in in around two dollars to three dollars right now um you know part the water veil is a card that gives extra turns those cards tend to appreciate over time undergrowth champion does all sorts of wacky things with hardened scales uh in casual and commander um void winnower has a very unique effect at the top end of a curve that will eventually uh, there'll be some way of uh capitalizing on it without paying its full cost and sire of stagnation is uh gives me all sorts of shades um uh of other blue cards that have allowed you to draw cards when uh the opponent does something that they would normally want to do um and i find it very hard to believe that any of these cards stay under ten dollars if you give a long enough time horizon Hmm. okay you know, with Undergrowth Champion, you even have the chance of uh, of making that in standard, too. I mean, again, uh, it, this is something that I think has kind of been missed a lot, is all of these, any standard legal card with double costs, like 1cc, uh, is basically unplayable with these mono bases. And as soon as rotation happens and people have to go back to the real world, 
uh, all of these cards are going to come out of the woodwork because that's what you're going to have to play. So I wonder if we see undergrowth champion grow in strength. So that's a, that's a fun little short and long term pick. Well, I mean, as, as we're going to discuss a little later, um, the hardened scales deck has kind of come out of nowhere, uh, this week to reclaim a slot in various top eights. And, uh, Nisa was a big part of that. Um, a lot of players have tested undergrowth champion in the deck. Apparently many of the pros that chose to run the deck, uh, this past weekend at GP Houston, um, had tested the card, but felt like it, it just didn't deserve the slot. They had other things they wanted to be doing on curve. Chiefly, it was competing with Nisa in the, in the three slot. Um, you kind of ha- wanted to have it out ahead of Nisa, but you wanted to play Nisa on curve. And so it became a conflict and they cut it. Um, but there's still, you know, th- that may change as time goes on. We've got multiple sets left before this rotates. Um, and again, uh, all, I love all of these mythics as long-term picks. And I can t- I expect that any of them that don't find a home in standard over the next few months are going to get even lower as we get towards the summer lulls um, that usually destroy the value of most standard cards, um, especially non-staples, uh, at which point I'll be looking to move in on 30 or 40 copies of each of these. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my next pick is uh, Sealed Oath of the Gatewatch product. And this is just sort of a a placeholder for Oath, Oath, Oath of the Gatewatch cards in general. Uh, my confidence level on this is probably a six or so. Uh, you know, I wrote about this this week in my MTG Press article, so I'm not going to repeat that verbatim. The short version of this is that I think Oath of the Gatewatch is extremely dense with very playable cards, both in standard in eternal formats and at casual tables. So in a set where you have this density of cards that will be desirable by different uh, sections of the player base, I think that this is poised to see dramatic increases in prices both on the sealed product and also the singles could see a great rise in price as well. So whether you're doing targeted singles or buying sealed product product in general, uh, I think that there's a lot of value to be had in this set. And I would encourage you to keep an eye out on all sorts of rares and mythics and even some of the uncommons from both of the Gatewatch. The one caveat I'll throw in on that, though, is that if the Eldrazi get banned out of modern and end up not just being a tier two deck, but legitimately just kicked out of the format for being too slow, um, then a lot of the value in Oath you know, could be longer term. And so one of the things I would look at um, on the assumption that either Legacy or Eternal will house the Eldrazi uh, as a deck um, is the concept that foreign booster boxes being 10 or $20 more than the non-foil booster boxes might be a place to be looking. I mean, you can get a Russian box for about 130 right now, a Korean box for about 110 and the foil multiplier on getting, you know, a Thought Nazi or, or a Reality Smasher uh, in a foreign language that's in high demand, like Japanese, Korean, or Russian, um, could be something that will be very useful down the road um, in making those boxes tempting um, for other people to pick up when they might not be as interested um, in the uh, modern applications. I, I want to highlight here that you're totally right. We could see the Eldrazi get the band in modern, which would cut the legs out from underneath of several of those cards. But uh, my impression of the set is not at all based on reality smasher and uh mimic 
Eldrazi Mimic. In fact, I would go so far as to say that those are, I consider those more of throw-ins because I expect the deck to get to get banned and for both prices to drop. So I kind of evaluated it without those cards in the mix. And I think it still stands up as, as, a, as a great long-term choice. So let me call out a few and see if you agree with me then on things you might be thinking of. Kalidus, looks like he's going to be a modern staple. Nisa, yeah, Nisa is at very least a casual uh, staple with hardened scales long term for sure, um, yep. and might might find a home in modern. Um, Kozilek, the Great Distortion, is going to find value outside of being an Eldrazi. Um, of course, Kozilek's Return is a potential modern card. Worldbreaker may have a home in the green red ramp deck in modern, regardless of Eldrazi lands. Um, and, yeah, and, uh, and so many of these, so many of these cards are possibly standard playable. You know, the set's only been out for three weeks. Give it a month or two. Give it a rotation. We may see some of these explode. Uh, so you make your money right now if they do. And if not, a lot of them are in great shape for long term. Because we're still, we have at rare three uh, creature lands that are, you know, under three bucks right now. We have Mirror Pool, the forgotten mythic land that's almost certainly mm-hmm. going to be a $20 card down the road when somebody breaks it one day. Um, Eldrazi Mimic is, is playable in Legacy, um, regardless, um, alongside Phyrexian Dreadnought and Stifle um, in some kind of tier 2, 2.5 deck. So, yeah, I, I can understand where you're coming from. There's a lot of, you know, deep long-term value in this set, uh, almost regardless of what happens to Eldrazi in Modern. Yeah, and I think you can go and look at a card like Unwinding Clock from New Phyrexia. It's a New Phyrexia Rare. When that card came out, it was like a quarter. Nobody thought about it. But it was a popular, kind of a useful casual card that has bolstered that set's value tremendously. And when I look at Oath of the Gatewatch, I see all sorts of cards, like some of the Oath, that whole Oath cycle. It's like, you know, other than the Chandra one, those are pretty decent, the other three. So, uh, you know, stuff like that, we're just like, ah, oh, whatever, who cares about this today? But in two years, that Gideon giving extra counters to your Planeswalkers, somebody's going to be interested in that. And I think that's the place where you really see box value start to inflate is those longer term like mid-level casual stuff that starts to rise. And and here's one of the one of the things to consider about oaths uh, in particular, um, the meaning the oaths that the Planeswalkers make to join the Gatewatch. If they're going to be anything like the Avengers, and that's certainly what they're patterned out, off of, there are going to be team members that die and are replaced. There's going to be new people taking the oath. There'll be people betraying the oath. Um, and so you can expect that there'll be, you know, we're missing a black oath so far. Um mm-hmm. And you have to assume that we're going to get more of these oaths, each attributable to a different planeswalker and fairly difficult to repeat because the planeswalker has to be in the set for the oath to be of any relevance. And it has to be a repeat type set like a modern masters, because it wouldn't certainly wouldn't make sense in the context of, um, you know, the oath can only take place one time uh, in the, in the, in the narrative. So you can't really easily reprint oath of Gideon um, unless he's retaking the oath, which would be quite strange. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the, there's some weird kind of Vorthos stuff that sets up shields around some of those cards that gives them some great long-term value. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, what's your last card, James? Yeah, so my last card is Sanctum of Ugin from BFC, um, a rare I was surprised to see is, has dropped below a dollar. Um, foils are sitting in at around $4, and both of those seem like good pickups. Um, you know, this has a fairly unique... Uh, uh, effect when you cast a colorless spell with converted mana cost seven or greater um, and note that it doesn't need to be a creature or an Eldrazi, it's just any colorless spell, uh, seven or greater you can sacrifice the sanctum, you go search your library for a colorless creature card, reveal it, put it in your hand, 
that has future combo tasticness written all over it. Um, it's already proven to be good in in ramp style builds to find uh, Ulamog, etc. And I just I can't see this this land settling at a dollar long term. It could sit there for a while, but eventually that's a five dollar plus card minimum. Yeah, and I like this as a card that goes with Kozilek since he draws you up to seven. So, um, you know, you sacrifice this to find Kozilek, you cast Kozilek, and then he finds you another Sanctum of Ugin to power up your next one. So, you know, you can kind of you can kind of chain them. I like it. I like this and, and Shrine of the Forsaken, too. We've talked about in the past, both good cards. Yeah. All right. What, what uh, you know, is another part of this is our Cell Wash cards we think you guys should be getting rid of. Uh, I don't have anything that stands out to me this week, but it looks like you've got some stuff you want to tell our listeners. Yeah, this is a, a di- kind of a different uh, dimension um, this is about leaving money on the table and not getting greedy. Um, none of the cards on my sell watch this week are cards that need to be ditched immediately. Um, they're not uh, plummeting in value like some of the Eldrazi cards are as people get scared of abandoning in modern. These are just cards that have, you know, if you got in on these early, you are way, way up. Um, and it's time, I think, to to reap profits. So, for example, Horizon Canopy has spiked again this week and is... Uh, sitting in at around $70. I can only assume if you're holding a bunch of these, you probably got them at 10 or 20, maybe 25 or 30 if you were buying them for a modern deck in recent years. And, you know, Horizon Canopy has has nothing um, about it that prevents it from being reprinted. Um, it could show up as part of a complete land cycle. Um, it could show up just as it, itself in something like Eternal Masters or a Conspiracy. Um, it's a card that Wizards has probably noted has uh, a value higher than it should uh, be at. Certainly it's it's played in many, many, many modern decks, usually as a one or a two of. Um, but if it sees a reprint, it's going to plummet down into the you know, $15, $20, $25 range max. Um, and I don't want to be caught holding $70 copies when that happens. Um, I, and I, I want to point out really quick here, too, that that's a good point that you raise, uh, is that that whole cycle, a lot of them are difficult to print in full. For instance, Grove of the Burn Willows would not transition to a full cycle very well, because it would be so dramatically stronger if there's some color combos and other. But I can see this cycle being good in all color combos. It gives aggro decks a way to stay aggressive, run a higher land count, and still keep a threat density. Uh, and it also gives control decks the ability to get extra value out of their lands, which is something those decks are always looking for. So this is this is a cycle that you can see a show up anywhere. Yeah, I mean, likewise, another card on that I think people should be considering selling at this point is Blood Moon. Um, obviously, ubiquitous, um, very uh, important card in modern right now. Less so likely when the Eldrazi are banned, but still uh, a strong card um, that will show up in main decks occasionally and sideboards many, many times. Um, but this is a $50 card now. Um, and if you were picking them up in 2013, 2014, after the Modern Masters reprinting, you probably pick them up in the $15 to $20 range and you are uh, staring a, an easy double up in the face that I think you should um, think twice about before you ignore because this is a card that, you know, they're not going to reprint into standard, but they could easily reprint it in one of the supplemental sets. Um, and I, I would put the odds on that at say one in three, um, certainly not more than 50, 50 for 2016, but 
it doesn't really matter um, because I don't think that the, the the high end on this card is probably somewhere in the $70, $75 range um, before it gets reprinted. And, you know, you can you don't need to be in a rush to unload these, but if you can get out at a, a high trade value, especially if you have dark copies that would be in higher demand um, due to the old border um, and transition into something with good upside, then by all means. Likewise, Cavern of Souls, um, you know, from the Innistrad block is up to $50 as well. You probably got in in the $10 to $20 range if you were buying them near rotation. And, you know, this is a card that is um, was always earmarked as a gainer um, because of its unique ability to thwart counterspells and its tie-in with tribal decks. Um, but it's also a, a card that can be easily, easily reprinted. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this one looking at EMA conspiracy and an FTV thing called lore, um, too easily could this fit into one of those sets. Um, so I'm, I'm happily unloading everything, but my play set of those as well, um, and taking my profits and moving on. Yeah. And I want to highlight that Cavern of Souls is a card that I talked about, uh, late last year, I think it was where I addressed some cards that people had asked me about whether they should sell them or hold them or what. And Cavernous Souls is the card that I looked at and I basically came to the same conclusion. I said, this has gained tremendously. We could see it leave or we could see it reprinted any time, which will hit the value pretty hard. So I've been thinking about getting rid of mine right along. And this just kind of reminded me to go dig them out. Um, so, and, and I only bring this not to preempt you, but to say we are kind of on the same page. This has been a thought for a while. And with all the reprints coming up this year, uh, I don't think this is a bad choice at all of cards to sell. Um, go ahead. You want to say something? I think we're good. I mean, this is just uh, our gentle reminder, folks, that don't yeah, be afraid yeah. to take your money off the table and push it at a new opportunity if you're not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, as somebody who has uh, waited way too long to pull the trigger on many, many cards, I'm sure you, you do not want to find that yourself with that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Um <laughs> Segment three, a metagame week in review. This week we're talking about the Star City Open in Philadelphia. It was Legacy. Uh, we saw Jerry Thompson lose in the finals with Colorless Eldrazi. When you have a known professional player playing this brand new deck, you know it's got to be good. Jerry Thompson likes his Legacy. Uh, what do you make of this event, James? Well, it's interesting because the... Uh, it, it was set up for any appearance of Eldrazi in the top eight to bring, you know, size of exasperation. But in talking to a lot of legacy players and looking at what the feedback was like coming out of the tournament, it seemed like people thought the deck was reasonably well balanced and a, a, a relatively welcome addition to the metagame. I mean, the broken draws are often still very broken, but legacy is such a broken format in general um, that many of the decks can can handle what their, you know, their output you know, just look at the fact that Grixis Delver um, took down Jerry Thompson's deck in the final. Um, in fact, another Grixis Delver, Miracles Lands, and a Blue-Red Delver rounded out the top eight. You know, that's that's a fairly healthy um, competitive metagame. Um, Eldrazi are unlikely to be super unbalanced in that format, largely because, um, you know, land destruction effects like Wasteland are very present. Um, and can really slow down their development if they have the wrong kind of draw. Um, some players did seem to be frustrated by the fact that, you know, four main deck Thorn of Amethyst, four main deck Chalice of the Void uh, <laughs> can can lock people out of the games pretty quickly. 
Um, notable that Thompson was also running for Wasteland of his own and for Cavern of Souls. So it's not like um, he wasn't also playing the land destruction game and uh, it's not like counter spells were uh, particularly scary to him. Um, that ability uh, to run kind of whatever utility, colorless utility lands you want on top of fast mana generation with literally no downside um, does stretch the concept of what is a fair mana base in any format. Um, but but I think that it, what we're likely to see here is that the, the metagame will continue to evolve around uh, the, the shape of the Eldrazi and settle into something that, you know, where the decks uh, are running a few cards different than they used to, to make sure that they've got some game pre sideboard. And then the sideboards probably warp to make sure that um, the deck is uh, more effectively hated out. Um, yeah, that would be my take. I, I like that you mentioned that the legacy players are upset with Thorn of Amethyst and Chalice of the Void. They should check out Vintage Workshop, where you can go turn one Workshop Mots Double Thorn of Amethyst, which basically increases the converted mana cost of your opponent's entire deck by about 400%. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you had two Moxes in your opening hand and you didn't get to play first? Well, too bad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. What I got out of this... Uh, you know, this is something we kind of looked at a little bit a, a while ago when the reserve list uh, came up in terms of Eternal Masters. But if you look through this top eight and look at the look at the main decks for all of for these eight decks and look beyond the dual lands, you will see very little reserve list cards beyond those ten lands. Those ten reserve list lands, there just isn't that much uh, lands. The deck lands uh, most definitely is hampered by the reserve list. It plays four mox diamonds, uh, plays tabernacle, uh, which is definitely a key card that kind of exists. It's in the mana base, but it's not technically uh, a mana card, I would say. Um, but I, I just noticed that this actually does the, the format in general does not lean as hard on the reserve list as you, one might expect, uh, aside from the mana base. So uh, I, I just I just find that interesting. I don't think necessarily that that. Wizards is going to do much about it. I think if you ban the entire reserve list, that it uh, it's probably worse than if you were not to do that. I don't think that's the direction they're going to go. But I, I just find it interesting to notice that for all of the hand wringing and belly aching about the reserve list in general, it actually does not impact legacy that much. Yeah, I mean, for some decks, it certainly does. Grixis Delvers running uh, a tropical island, two underground seas, three volcanic islands, and four wasteland. Um, so, you know, that's, but wasteland's not reserved. Sure. But they're still expensive. Um, and even in after EMA, I expect them to be a probably 30 or $40 card. So it's not like the the mana base, uh, including flooded strands and polluted deltas, which will probably be up to, you know, 30 or 35 by the fall. Um, you're still talking about a couple thousand dollars for that mana base and in the Delver builds. I, I wasn't thinking about it necessarily in terms of price. I'm thinking about it more in terms of availability. Um, and sort of long-term health of the format. You know, I've long been a proponent that legacy is eventually going to die. And I don't think that's less true now than it was then. Just that uh, if you want to play legacy, if you can find substitutions for the dual lands or that you choose to play a deck without them, uh, other than that, it's not too difficult to get in the door. I'll put it to you this way. If you're willing to play casual legacy, like you're willing to show up at a big legacy tournament and you don't really care if you drop a couple of matches from from taking pain from your lands, then you can get in very cheaply. I mean, Grixis Delver is mm-hmm. you know less than two hundred dollars if you don't care which lands you're using. Um, 
But if you want to have the full the full set and be a, a fully competitive player, yeah, you've, you've got some issues on the budget side. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting, though, in Grixis Delver, uh, Noah Walker's deck that won, um, was this interaction between Young Pyromancer and Cabal Therapy, where, yeah. you know, you're playing against uh, um, uh, Eldrazi, and you know what's in their hand. It's always it's always the same cards about to beat you upside the head. So you you knock out the Reality Smashers and or the Thought Not Seers with the first pass of Cabal Therapy. Young Pyromancer makes you a token and you flash back the, the, the second version of Cabal Therapy and name the other one. I mean... That seems effective. Yeah, I have I have many times daydreamed about casting Cabal Therapy with Young Pyromancer in Modern and then realized that other people would be doing it harder than I was and decided that it probably wasn't a good idea in general. But it sure would be nice if I was the only person that got to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, the Grixis Delver package also had four days and four force at will. So not only could they, you know, force in the usual manner to stop problematic threats early if they had to, they can daze early just to, to stop a big Eldrazi from hitting the board. Um, and the thing about Reality Smasher and Thought Not Seer is that their triggers are, uh, well, I mean, first of all, Reality Smasher doesn't is only triggered when you get rid of them. Um, and Thought Not Seer doesn't have an enter the battle, uh, sorry, has an enter the battlefield trigger, but does not have an on cast trigger. So, you know, counter spells are more effective against those two threats than they are against some of the other Eldrazi like Worldbreaker or Ulamog. Oh my god, you know what I just realized? Can you imagine playing in modern and turn two remanding a spell, untapping, playing a young pyromancer, cabal therapy for the card you just remanded, and then getting the C? their hand so that you could get another card for free oh my god that would be <laughs> yeah there's, right. there's a reason so, there's a reason they haven't given us cabal therapy in modern yeah if you needed if you were wondering whether that card was fair in modern no we just Pro answered the question for you it probably is not, not. <laughs> yeah I, I mean i've, I've had a, a mardu deck with um monastery mentors and young pyromancers sitting around for a while it would very very much like cabal therapy to be approved oh man all right uh over in the modern classic really quick we saw another six aldrazi in the top 16 very clearly an unhealthy metagame uh i i think we're past the writing on the wall i don't even know what analogy to use at this point other than to say it is coming yeah, I mean the the banning's coming. The I think it was only two or three in the top eight, um, but that's still you know, I, I, it's not just if it was two or three in the top eight once, fine, but it's every week. So yeah, yeah it's too much. Um, the most exciting thing probably going on uh, across almost all the decks li deck lists though this week was that Hardened Scales made a, a very strong appearance with many many pros on the deck at GP Houston. Um, it's actually unclear whether the win percentage on the deck was was very good, um, but it did put a lot of people deep into day two. Um, and was this card like five dollars at some point? Because it's like a yeah. dollar right now in TCG Player. Yeah, there was some hype in the fall that it was going to be an important card, and I unloaded a whole bunch at five or six um, happily. Um, I expect that down the road it will again be a five or six dollar card because the effect is unique and will be the linchpin of many a counter based casual deck down the road. Um, every single card creature they print that uses counters will be a potential uh, card that make uh, a step closer to this being a potential modern uh, deck. And if it's never a modern deck, so what? It's still going to be casually popular and, and and be a thing in EDH for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you have to wonder whether this card is going to be popular, just check out Doubling Season. And there are a lot of real cheap copies left on TCU Player, so this is uh, probably a pretty good pickup. Can I put this back up in segment two? We're just going to add this retroactively. 
All right. So, <laughs> so I mean, one, one of the funny things here is that this green-white Hardensdale's deck plays out in standard very similarly to how Drazi plays out in modern um, with slightly less disruption. Um, because you end up getting things, you, you, you can do things like go Servant of the Scale uh, into Avatar of the Resolute, which comes in as a, a 4-3 reach trample for 2, and then the Servant of the Scale dies, and you put that counter on the Avatar, and now he's a 5-4 reach trample for 2, and then you play Nisa, and Nisa gives all your creatures plus 1, plus 1, so now you got a 6-5 reach trample for 2. And I saw several players forget that Avatar of the Resolute even had reach and just run their Mantis Riders into it and stuff on camera, which was amazing. Um, and then when it was time for the Hardened Scales deck to win, they would just drop an Abzan Falconer, give all their creatures flying, and fly in. Mm. All right, yeah, I saw LSV looking for like 12 or 16 of those cards ahead of this weekend. Yeah, it was, it was one of the hardest telegraphed deck choices um, in recent memory, but I don't think anybody took it seriously because he's such a troll, and yet there he <laughs> was laying out like exactly the number of people that he was associated with that were playing the deck. My favorite uh, bit on this is back uh, one of the Pro Tours, I don't even know which one at this point, but he described his, his thought process, and it was like, three days before the Pro Tour, I'm never playing... Uh, Trifle Carbinger in the Pro Tour. Two days before the Pro Tour, I am not playing four Trifle Carbinger at the Pro Tour. A day before the Pro Tour, can you overnight 48 Trifle Carbingers to Germany? <laughs> it was, <laughs> I just, I, I, that always stands out in my mind as uh, a great little tidbit. All right, let's move on to segment four, our topic of the week. Uh, this is something I, I'm really interested in because I feel like I never get a chance to learn enough about this. And there's a real dearth of MTGO finance content out there right now. Um, you know, MTG prices tried to host some of it and, and you can find it, you can find it elsewhere, but occasionally, but there's just not a lot of good details out there on this. So I'm going to ask James who, who's dealt with this, some questions because I I'm curious and I know a lot of you are too. Um, so at the start of this, you know, what are the key things that we should know about investing in MTGO that's different than paper? When you're looking at the the pillars um, of MTGO finance and what makes it different from paper finance, the first thing to keep in mind is that the paper market um, is extremely healthy, very stable, um, unlikely to change much other than in a positive way over the next, say, three to five years based on current trend lines. Um, but the future of Magic Online is, uh, you know, much more uh, in jeopardy. Um, one thing that could happen is that in the next few years, uh, Wizards quietly invests a lot of money into a brand new platform, and the new platform does not support uh, an economy uh, or does not support an economy in the same way. Um, that the current platform does, and that this somehow negatively impacts people that are holding a lot of uh, Magic Online specs. Um, obviously, the the bot owners would have something to say about that, since they are kind of an um, uh, official, unofficial uh, part of the Magic economy. Um, and if you don't know what a bot is, let me break that down for you. So... Uh, the way that the magic online economy works is that it does not have any kind of um, bid and ask system that allows players to interact with one another and buy and sell cards directly. Um, you can uh, go into a, a trade with another player 
and you can propose you can uh, operate in a chat log and you can propose a trade but you can't do any of these things in an automated way you have to basically be online talking to another person um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it because the the um, the assumption would be that you could just say i would like the system to unload these cards for me at this price and then just walk away and the system would take care of that whether you were online or not um, just like every other digital economy platform out there sure so, I mean, and I understand that there have been, you know, a lot of uh, different digital economies, Diablo is an example, have had problems um, that have arisen through allowing things to work that fluidly. Um, but e even accepting that that's the case, um, it's still extremely strange what has, you know, developed and evolved inside the magic economy over the years, which is the presence of bots. And again, bots are basically um, people running ghosted accounts off of hosted servers that will that uh, are run alongside logic, that uh, price logic and trade logic that um, logs into Magic Online and functions like a user and has a deep inventory, usually of both tickets and cards, and um, will buy and sell cards with other players. Um, they these bots often run on a spread, so you know they'll buy a card at ten dollars but sell it at fifteen. Um, and the spread is how they make their money. So they don't really care whether prices go up or down. They just care that as prices move around, they're always paying less than everybody else and charging more. Um, over time, uh, some very uh, uh, major bot chains have arisen, including Goat Bots, um, MTGO Traders, um, and the entire library of bots that are kind of sub-licensed through uh, MTGO WikiPrice. Um, and these bots form most of the, the spine of operation um, in the magic economy, provide you with the, the best chance of going liquid. Most of these bots run websites. These websites post uh, prices both for buy and sell. Um, and one of the things that's important to note when you're you know, planning out your specs for Magic Online is that just as in the paper world, you need to be aware of the buy list prices as your, your best guaranteed out. Um, the buy list prices from the bots are also the most relevant number to look at when figuring out whether you can exit at a profit. Um, if a card goes from 10 to 15, but the bots will only give you 12, then you're really only up two tickets, not five. All right. There is a lot to digest there. Uh, I'm going to move on to our next question. Uh, I'm very familiar with the price distribution of paper cards in standard. There's one or two cards in, in one or two mythics in the 15 to $30 range. Uh, you have a, a small handful of rares typically in the double digits. You have one or two, you know, in the, in the high tens and then uh, you, you kind of get a feel for, for how many cards can cost how much within a set that's in standard. But I'd heard that MTGO operates a little differently and you tend to see clumping at the extreme. So I was wondering if you could shed a little light on what for I think a lot of people has become kind of intuitive in the paper world. Well, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind with Magic Online is that um, the, is the premise of redemption. So magic allows you to if you collect a full set uh, of cards so say you get one of every card from battle for zendikar 
you can um, redeem that set, which means that you can trade that set in um, to Wizards of the Coast. They will take away your digital assets. They will send you a full set neatly wrapped in the mail. And um, for the privilege of doing that, you have to pay roughly about $25 or $30 in fees. Um, Now, because sets online tend to be uh, worth less overall than their paper counterparts, um, uh, partially because the Magic Online economy is is, uh, primarily driven by drafts and uh, when a set is being drafted intensely shortly after its release, it, so many copies are generated in the drafts that are being run that they can't possibly be absorbed by the fairly limited amount of constructed players in the Magic Online economy. Um, because of that, you see some of the differences in between um, the price of cards in paper and online. And especially with cards that are generally considered to be useless, um, uh if there is no constructed application for a card, but it's being constantly generated inside draft environments and let loose on the economy, that card can crash down, you know, a bulk rare is a dollar, but a bulk rare on Magic Online is like two cents because there's literally nothing to prop up support for that card. Now, one of the other things that's relevant is that once redemption finishes, um, if the card has no constructed applications beyond um, you know, standard or modern or or legacy. It's not good in popper. It can't be played in commander. Um, it's just a kind of a nothing card. Then it, it is essentially a worthless asset because there there's no function um, of collectability on Magic Online. Um, I've never talked to anybody who said they were trying to get complete sets of things just for the sake of having complete sets. Um, the only people that seem to ever do that are people that are planning on redeeming those sets, turning them into paper, and either flipping them for you know a re- relatively modest profit. Um, you know, you do it right, you can kind of make ten or twenty or thirty dollars um, on a set um, that you redeem kind of the same year that you collected online. Um, so because of that, um, you do have cards that can fall to you know. Uh, pennies and would and would probably fall to fractions of a penny um, if, if that was possible. Um, a lot of the cards listed on GoatBots, for instance, are at 0.005, 0.009. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is because the magic economy doesn't facilitate, um, operates on, on tickets, um, which you used to just be able to buy from the store, but then they were given out as, as prizes and, and so forth. And you could buy them from other players by transferring them between accounts. And so now they're the de facto currency um, of the system. And, but the system doesn't support fractional versions of tickets. So if you want to buy a one cent card from a bot, you have to give them a full ticket. Um, And now that bot will owe you 99 cents worth of value, which you have to remember and track. Otherwise it just gets lost and absorbed uh, into the bots over time. So one of the things that when, when you're speculating online is uh, that I find very useful is to establish you know which bot chains um, have the most liquidity in terms of tickets, they, i.e. they can buy a lot of uh, cards from you in a short period of time um, that uh, change their prices relatively slowly um, when they're doing that buying um, and that will have deep uh uh, resources of cards when you're trying to buy cards. Because if you can identify the bots that do that, and I named some of them earlier, MTGO Traders, Goat Bots, um, the, the various bots associated with MTGO WikiPrice, um, all of those bots are relatively reliable in terms of having um, pretty decent pricing. 
uh, on both ends of the spectrum, buy and sell, they they try to be competitive. Um, and by using the same bots over and over again, you can make sure that you don't strand a bunch of your money in fractional tickets um, within a, a scattered set of bots. Wow. All right. That is another great chunk of information. Uh, I, I'm going to ask the next question just, just so that it gets asked here. This is, this is something that this is all very useful information. And I think what really we want to boil down to is, uh, you know, how do I make money out of this? What is the strategy for investing in Modo? So if we're talking about speculation and, and keep in mind that you do have basically two avenues of approach, you could just run a bot yourself. Now running a bot, uh, is a relatively involved procedure that is not unlike running a small business, um, or a very involved hobby. Uh, it involves a lot of micromanagement. Um, you take on a relatively amount, reasonable amount of risk because there is some fixed costs up front. Um, you need to be running a relatively uh, high-end uh, computer. Uh, it needs to have a pretty great connection, and you need to be willing to support the transactions that take place on your bot. Um, the bot software, you don't necessarily need to run, uh, sorry, write yourself these days. You can rent it or license it from somebody else. Um, but... I'll summarize all of that by saying this. I looked into that, and and unless you want to uh, take a run at it as a real job, um, you're better off speculating. Um, the reason for that is there are some uh, speculation uh, opportunities that show up uh, uh, over and over and over again in the Magic Online economy. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, during the pre-release events, when a set comes out, um, the booster packs for that event tend to drop down into the 3.3 to 3.5 ticket range. Um, and keep in mind that booster packs generally cost four tickets online if you're buying them from the, the Magic Online store, which I don't think anybody really does anymore. Um, but that's your baseline. Um, so you can, during pre-release, kind of the first few days of a pre-release event, you can buy packs um, from uh, a bot for somewhere in that range, 3.3, 3.4, 3.5. Um, about three or four days later, almost like clockwork, those um, packs will rise back up into the 3.7 to 3.8 range um, uh, because they aren't being uh, in between pre-release and release events. There's no flow of packs into the economy. So the bots are generally um, selling more packs than they're buying. So their price rises. Um, now, the difference between you know 3.8 and 3.4 isn't a lot. Um, you're talking about you know uh, relatively low percentage gains total, but you're also talking about getting the you know something like a 10 or 15 percent gain in a very short period of time, and you can do it multiple times per year. So you put a thousand uh, tickets worth uh, into uh, boosters um, four or five times a year, um, and you compound that uh, over those times, you can double up your money by the end of the year, which is you know a pretty great return actually. Um, one of the other things that happens uh, relatively routinely um, that was noticed over the last couple of years is that uh, fall set mythic foils tend to start uh, relatively low, all kind of clustered around 10 or 12 tickets um, per card. Um, foils in general are uh, not in demand online because nobody really, uh, because the representation of foils is so poor and adds so little to the game value that pimping out your decks is just not really a thing online. And as such, foils really should have been retired ages ago, but Wizards is clinging to them obstinately. Um, and But the interesting thing is that the Mythic foils will have some demand uh, about a year later because 
you know, for instance, if you pick up Battle for Zendikar mythic foils uh, in the, say, November of 2015, and then try to unload them in September or October of 2016, you're generally going to see a, a, a pretty strong gain in the 25 to 40% range because those mythic foils are uh, have redemption potential. So somebody could collect a full set of foils um, and send it in for redemption, and holding that for a while could yield some really good gains. So those mythic foils are going to be in high demand because they aren't outputted through the draft economy all that often because there's no you know 15 or so foil uh, mythic foils in a set. Um, and it's hard to track them down. It's hard for uh, some of the smaller bots to have more, to even be guaranteed to have one in stock. And so as people start to put pull together their redemption sets, um, those mythic foils tend to be you know pretty solid gainers. So one of the things that guys like me do will you'll pull together a basket of foil mythics, mythics say you know five or ten copies of each um, for the fall set about a month after it comes out, and then you just sit on it for eight to nine months, and your rewards are relatively simple. What I'm hearing here is that I need to take 100,000 tickets, buy packs, and turn that into a yearly salary. So that actually points the finger at one of the things that uh, prevents Magic Online from becoming some kind of runaway freight train of investment potential. Um, And that's the the factor of scalability. I said that I'm managing 10,000 tickets or so. I know of one other guy that's managing 20,000 tickets. Um, I'm sure there are, you know, a double handful of other people doing that. And then you have the bots that have <clears throat> quite a lot of value wrapped up in their, their kind of pockets of the economy. Um, it's really hard, though, um, in the Magic Online economy to do what you could do in the stock market. If you've got enough money, you can go out and buy, you know, 10,000 shares of Apple and you will barely move the needle on the stock price that day, especially if you do it kind of a piece at a time um, over the course of several days. But in the magic online economy, um, if you were to try to push 100,000 into the system all on the same day, you would be moving prices faster than you could ever capitalize on them. So if a card starts at $10, typically what will happen is a bot will let you buy four copies um, at that price. And then the next time you try to buy four copies from that bot, um, if it's less than 24 hours later, uh, the bot, and it varies from bot to bot, sometimes it's a couple of hours, sometimes it's a day, um, but there's some period of time within which if the bot detects that you want more copies of the same card, it's going to charge you more. Um, and the next time you do it, it's going to be even more. And it's going to go up the scale like that until your dollar cost averaging you know, on a $10 card, if after you've bought 50 or 60 copies, you might push the price up to $20. And if you push the price up to $20, your entry point was 15. Meanwhile, other bots are still selling at a 10. It's going to be hard for you to make money. Um, So one of the things you need to do is look at baskets. So um, one way to do baskets is if a card has multiple copies, something like Blood Moon, which has come out in multiple sets, if you want to make a run on Blood Moon, instead of buying 20 copies of the same Blood Moon uh, edition from the same set, you go around buying, you know, four from one set, four from another, four from another, four from another. The bots will consider those to be four different cards. Um, if if you run, try to buy twenty of the same, uh, many bots just w- simply won't let you do that. Um, and one of the things that that will impact is the amount of time you have to spend to pull your specs together. So it's definitely much more of a drip, drip, drip kind of thing than it is, you know, being able to push a lot of money into the space all at the same time. Economy of scale, I think, is the number one thing that keeps me 
from getting deeper into magic finance. It's like this sort of this barrier that acts as a uh, this limiting factor on how much time, money, and effort it is worth putting into this because eventually the cost of moving paper cards around becomes more work than it's worth. Yeah. So, and this is only magnified in in, in Moto. Now, one of the things you can do if you're gonna if you plan on if you really want to put you know, push some serious money in is you can communicate with the owners of the bots directly. So some of the bigger bots have customer service pages on their respective websites. You can contact them. And and occasionally, if I want 100 copies of something, I just send a guy an email and say, I want 100 copies of this. Uh, You can deliver it to me at any point this week. That kind of situation gives them some really good flexibility in terms of being able to, um, you know, adjust their pricing throughout the flow of the week so that they get the maximum benefit from selling to you at the price that you've named at the time. Um, so if you said you were going to pay, you know, 15 for Snapcaster Mage and you told them on a Monday and they know that, um, prices are going to drop, uh, the lowest on a Wednesday, they can agree to fulfill the order by Friday. And on Wednesday, they can pick up a bunch of copies, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they can pick up copies as low as they possibly can so that when they're selling them to you, their margins are as good as they could be. Um, and that, that has, uh, in several situations where I wanted to go particularly deep and I wanted to go deep fast, uh, paid off. So that that is, that option definitely exists. Um, uh, one of the problems there is you can't you can't be guaranteed to get a response uh, as fast as you want to move. One of the things about Magic Online is that if a card shows up on camera at a major paper event, there's a pretty good chance the first place it's going to jump is Magic Online because you know people are often watching these streams on their computers they may even have magic online uh, booted up and they may be you know playing as they're watching and if they see something that looks like it could spike um they're going to jump at that opportunity because it's literally at their fingertips and so one of the things that you can use magic online for even if you're not interested in investing there is you can watch the change in prices um of key cards um, and and use them as you know the canary in the coal mine that signals something's going to happen in paper. We see it again and again and again and again that cards will move first on Magic Online. There there was a major upswing in Eldrazi activity on Magic Online uh, leading into the Pro Tour as people were ex- uh, exper- experimenting with that deck. And anybody that was paying attention could see um, that the writing was on the wall, that the deck was a real thing. Which version was going to appear um, was not certain, but there was definitely signals on online that Eldrazi were coming before paper realized it was it was a, a major, major animal. Wow. All right. There is so much information there. And we could probably do this for another hour, but we are already bumping up against, or well, I shouldn't say bumping up. We are well past our intended timeline for this podcast. So perhaps we'll do a part two and a part three. We can take some some viewer questions and viewer listener listener questions and we can revisit this topic uh, down the road. So if any of the listeners this week have any questions about MTGO finance that you'd like uh, us to cover on a future episode, um, please feel free to send them to mtgfastfinance at gmail.com. You can reach out to us at mtgprice.com. Um, or you can pick us up on Twitter. But okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and finish this up. So James, you provide us a lot of excellent information on MTGO this week. If people want to get a hold of you, read what you else you have to say, where can they find you? Well, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Awesome. And again, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. 
And I am also a writer every Wednesday on mtgprice.com. I'm a portrait writer. Uh, and that wraps up episode seven, recorded on Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016. Uh, I thought we had a great episode this week, James, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.